All right, as you can see, we are decorated for VBS, which begins tomorrow. Uh, Meg is going to come up later in the service and tell us more about it, but it's going to be pretty massive. I think we have the most kids we've ever had at VBS, and I think it's over 100, so we're, we're going to have a ton of people here uh, hearing the gospel and playing fun games and being silly, and it's going to be uh, fantastic chaos. So it'll be a lot of fun. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. We're going through the book of Acts this summer, and so we are in Acts 15. Now, now, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Acts 15. There might be a Bible under your seat in front of you, uh, or I'll also have the passage on, on the screen here if you need it. So while you're turning there, let me go ahead and pray for our time together. Father God, we long to hear from you. You are a God who speaks and you've given us your word, the scriptures. Open our eyes so that we can see wondrous things in this book. Soften our hearts so that we can see more of Jesus. We pray this in, in the Lord of the Rings book is also one of the most boring. Uh, chapter 14 of the Fellowship of the Ring is the Council of Elrond. Uh, and it is the longest chapter in the whole Lord of the Rings at 15,000 words. That's a lot. Maybe you've heard the story writing principle that you should show, not tell. Tolkien clearly didn't agree with that because this chapter is just a room full of people talking, narrating backstories and uh, discussing what to do now. And yet I love this chapter because it gathers all the important people of Middle Earth together in a room to discuss the biggest problem in the world and come up with a solution. It sets the whole trajectory from the story and it all happens because people got together in a room and talked about it. Acts 15 is the first major church council in Christian history. Uh, throughout Christian history and even in our denomination, the EFCA, there have been numerous large decision-making church assemblies or national conferences where church leaders come together to debate this or that. And in my experience, there are two opposite errors that we can make when we think about church councils or church leadership in general. Uh, the first error is to view them as boring or irrelevant. You know, the things they discuss have very little to do with my day-to-day -day life. It's just a bunch of theologians and Bible nerds getting together to split hairs on things that don't matter. The second error is to instinctively distrust church leadership or councils. Now, there certainly have been evil, ungodly leaders in church history who have used their authority and power for their own gain, and yet some people today are suspicious of any and all authority, uh, any and all power. Uh, the words church council kind of call to mind the, the smoky back room where shady deals are made and that kind of thing. Uh, and yet, in Acts 15, the council in Jerusalem is neither irrelevant nor secretive. Uh, we get to be a fly on the wall of what we might call, without exaggeration, one of the most important meetings in church history. The situation is set up for us in Acts 15, verse 1. Uh, you can read it with me. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So Paul and Barnabas are in the city of Antioch in Syria, having just returned from a missionary journey around Asia Minor, or what's now Turkey, to preach the good news about salvation in Jesus. 
And many Jews and non-Jews or Gentiles have converted and started following Jesus. But there's now this roadblock, a dispute that comes up. Uh, The people of God up to this point have been commanded to follow the laws of the Torah, which includes circumcision for males, it includes uh, kosher food laws, not working on the Sabbath, and so on. And there are some now saying that Christians, those who believe in Jesus, must continue to follow those laws of Moses. So we're going to get more into the details of why they think that and and what the debate is, but that's the spark that breaks out in the city of Antioch, and it results in a conference in Jerusalem where this matter would be discussed. And you might be thinking, okay, that's an interesting historical detail, but if this was decided once, it doesn't have all that much to do with my life today. What is at stake here, however, is not just this first century debate It's about the nature of salvation itself. How can human beings be in a relationship with the God who made us? It's one of the core questions that all human beings need to address in order for us to escape the death that we deserve because of our rebellion against God. What must we do to be saved? Do we need to follow the laws of Moses? Do we need to turn to another religion? Do we need a certain set of behaviors? What must we do to be saved? Jesus said, all you need is belief. But is that enough? Is belief enough? So uh, this is a question that is relevant not only for Christians, but for all people. If you're here and you are not a Christian, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. And the main takeaway I want you to get from Acts 15 is not this Jew-Gentile debate about the Mosaic law. What I want you to do is confront the claims about Jesus to be the Savior of the world. What are you going to do with that? Will you accept it? Will you reject it? Will you consider, ask, question about it? When it comes to the biggest existential questions that we can ask in this life. There's maybe no bigger one than this. What must we do to be saved? And as we're going to see, Acts 15 is set up for the first church split. There have been a lot of church splits throughout history. Jesus has now ascended to heaven. He's given his disciples the Holy Spirit. He's set them up to be witnesses to the gospel, to the ends of the earth. But it could have all fallen apart right here. And yet, as we're going to see, this council in Jerusalem results not in increased and greater division, but increased unity. How does that happen? Well, we're going to read Acts 15 and look at it in three parts, the question, the debate, and the response. And along the way, I'll I'll draw out some principles for our lives and for the life of our church today. So, let's read Acts 15, starting with the question in verses 1 to 6. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up 
and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. The city of Antioch in Syria is hundreds of miles north of Jerusalem, but the gospel is now spreading everywhere. People are believing that Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived, that he died for our sins on the cross, that he rose again to give us new life. But in Antioch, this question comes up. Do do Gentile Christians still need to follow the laws of Moses? In verse 2, there's a classic understatement that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. It tells us, oh, there was a lot of debate about this. There's a long conversations and arguments in a growing controversy building. But the decision is made that we're not going to resolve this here in Antioch. We've got to send some representatives down to Jerusalem, which was then the center of Christianity. And along the way, they pass through Phoenicia and Samaria, which were non-Jewish regions, and they tell the Christians there about what God had done in Asia Minor, how God had converted and saved Gentiles. The kingdom is growing. And then when they finally get to Jerusalem, they're welcomed by everyone in the church, the elders of the church, and the 12 apostles who walked with Jesus when he lived on this earth. So on the whole, we're meant to see this picture that the church is pretty unified, Uh, There's growing excitement and missional energy about what God is doing. And yet, there's a small vocal minority who raise an important question that needs to be settled. In verse 5, notice who is bringing this question forward. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now remember that the Pharisees were the religious leaders who often fought with Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. Uh, The Pharisees were the religious sticklers of the day. They were the truth watchdogs uh, that emphasized the necessity of keeping all of the law. And yet, this question is brought up by believers who are Pharisees. Jewish Christians who changed their mind about Jesus who now worship him as Israel's Messiah and Savior, and whose occupation is teacher of the law. Still a Pharisee, but now a believer in Jesus. And in order for us to understand the question that they're asking, we we need to understand the stakes for the Jewish Christians. For centuries, the people of Israel were defined by one thing. We are people of the law. God gave us the law. We have a special relationship with God because of the covenants that he made with Abraham, Moses, and David. God saved us from slavery in Egypt. He brought us to Mount Sinai, and he gave us the laws that would be central to our people. The law for Jewish believers was was more central than the Bill of Rights is to Americans. It was their central document. We are people of the covenant. Let me read this from Deuteronomy 6. Moses says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. But when Israel failed to keep the covenant, walked away from God and his law, what was the result? Exile, oppression, 
enslavement that continued on for generations, including now in Acts 15 under the Romans. So we can empathize with the Pharisee believers who are hearing Gentile Christians say things like, I don't have to follow the law of Moses. I'm free in Christ. In their mind, they're thinking, that's just what our forefathers did, and look at where it's put us now. No, we need to get back to the law. So these Jews are declaring that before God can accept Gentiles as genuine members of his holy people who are saved from the consequences of their sin and idolatry, first they must submit to the laws of Moses that were commanded them. Now that's a legitimate question that a lot of Christians that I talk to today still have. How should Christians relate to the Old Testament? Do we need to keep those laws? Do we not need to keep those laws in Christ? What, what is, what's the relationship there? And it's what leads to the apostles and the elders and the church leaders gathering together to consider it carefully. One more thing before we move on. As the story continues, pay attention to the language of brothers. Over and over again, the speakers in this debate will call each other brothers, fellow members of the family of God. Now, if you're more cynical or you grew up in a pretty dysfunctional uh, Christian church background, you might hear that with a certain you know, tone to it, like, oh, my brother in Christ, you were just stupid, and I disagree with you. Bless your heart, that kind of thing. Uh, there's a way to use that sarcastically, but by every indication, there is sincere love and desire for peace among everyone here. So unlike other parts of the New Testament, this is not a debate with non-Christian false teachers who were bringing in false doctrine into the church. It's between Christians who are trying to work this out work out this important and thorny issue as Christians. It's a family meeting, and that sets the tone. It should always set the tone for when Christians are debating things with other Christians. Just a little plug here for the Christians in politics seminar that our elder Brett and I are going to be talking. This is part of what we're talking about, the way that Christians speak to one another about things like politics should set the tone of we're a family there's a lot of debate and disagreement here, and that's necessary at times in the church, but it never devolves into personal, nasty attacks or church splits. It's Christians working it out like Christians, which is the way it should be. So, that's the question. What about the debate? And here's where we actually get into the core of the issue, and, and there's some deep stuff here. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Remember that in Acts 10, Peter receives a powerful vision from God multiple times in which God tells him to rise, kill, and eat animals that are unclean or not kosher. And Peter refuses, as a good Jew would, I'll never do that. But God says, what I have made clean, do not call common or unclean. And Peter thinks about that story, and a little bit later, he's invited into the house of a Gentile centurion named Cornelius. And he decides to go, which is, again, something a good Jew would never do. He preaches the gospel to them. And all of Cornelius' household believes in Jesus and receives the Holy Spirit. This event changed Peter's perspective on what God was doing in the world. No longer in his mind was there a distinction between ritually pure Jews and, and morally impure Gentiles. That distinction has been abolished. 
No longer was it the case that Gentiles needed to become Jews. Now all people needed was to believe the gospel and follow Jesus. He continues in verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter emphasizes that God accepted the Gentiles as Gentiles without submission to the Mosaic law. And this wasn't an oversight on God's part. God knows the human heart. And this all-knowing God showed that he accepted the faith of the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he's done on everyone who believes. Verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter turns it a little bit here. He puts up this challenge for the Jewish Christians. If God has given the Gentiles his spirit, if he's welcomed them into his people simply because they believe the gospel of Jesus, then why would we add an additional requirement for salvation? That makes no sense. Especially because the Jews were not saved by obedience to the law. No one has been saved by obedience. Nobody has ever kept the law. And yet, salvation happened. Salvation happens by faith. It was never by works. It was always and only about believing in the grace of God. And that enough is enough to be saved. There's a bit of a a boom, mic drop moment here in verse 12. And all of the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So we get the sense that the author Luke is giving us kind of the highlights of this, uh, this, the important moments of this council. And Peter's declaration was a massive turning point. But the question remains, okay, God may be moving in a unique way among the Gentiles, but does the Old Testament itself give proof that salvation not, comes not through obedience to the law, but through faith? In other words, can we back this up with the scriptures? We say we're people of the law, people of God's word. Okay, can we go to God's word and find anything that supports this? And this is when James, the brother of Jesus, steps up in verse 13. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related, by the way, very small detail. I love how James and Peter have known each other for so long that James still calls Peter by his old Jewish name, Simeon. It's kind of like the person you knew back in high school who still calls you by your high school nickname. That's great. Great little detail. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James argues that in the Torah, God's true people were those who had faith in God. So now Israel can no longer be defined in terms of ethnicity or ritual practice or a, a nation, but in terms of faith in Israel's crucified, risen, exalted Messiah. 
And he supports this claim by quoting Amos 9. You might have a little footnote in your Bible that says, oh, he's quoting from Amos 9. And that's true, mostly. So on your own, you can read Amos 9, verses 11 and 12, and you'll notice some interesting differences between what James says and what Amos 9 says. But James isn't making up verses to support his idea. He's actually combining five different passages from five different prophets. Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, and Zechariah. I put the references up there if you want to look at them later if you're curious. But this was not a citation error. It was common practice in Jewish scholarship to mix quotations that had similar meanings. It would be like if I was teaching on the Bible's, what the Bible says about God making human beings. And I said, we are made in the image of God. God made us fearfully and wonderfully, and we are made to be temples of the Holy Spirit. If you know some parts of the Bible, you know I just quoted three different passages and put them all together as a kind of summary of the Bible's teaching about this. And what James is doing, if you actually go into these, it's, it's a remarkably sophisticated analysis of the prophets, but it's a little bit too deep of a rabbit hole to go into there. I'm not sure I fully understand what he's doing either. It's very complex, and, and it's rooted in the conversations that were going on at the time. But here's the point that James is making. When the prophets spoke about God rebuilding his people, they've been scattered through exile, talking about God gathering his people back together, the prophets said that this new people would be a community of all people, regardless of background, all people, and the one thing that would unite them is the name of the Lord, the name of the Messiah, faith in God. In other words, God foretold a day when anyone from any nation would belong to him, regardless of whether they keep the law or not. Jesus uh, spoke of this in uh, John 10 when he, he spoke of himself as a shepherd. He said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's speaking to Jews. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. All that's required is faith. James is making this biblical argument. Peter is, is making an argument from the visions and experiences he had. Paul and Barnabas are speaking about the experiences they had when they were preaching the gospel. And it all comes down to this. Don't make the Gentiles keep kosher or get circumcised or keep the Sabbath because their salvation is based not in those things, but on their faith in Jesus. So let's pause here. That we just did some intense theology. The, the conversations in this council were pretty deep, like they got into it. Uh, what does it mean for us? Well, the core of the debate is that God saves us through faith, and that is the only standard by which we welcome people into the family of God. Not obedience, not good works, and it leads us to the heart of the gospel. A relationship with God requires nothing but faith. A relationship with God requires nothing but faith. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his only son so that any who believe would not perish but have eternal life. 
What is faith? Faith involves turning away from your self-sufficiency and sin and turning toward Jesus and his mercy. Faith involves seeing Jesus really live, really die, and really rise again and trusting that he did all of that to pay the punishment that you deserve to pay for your sin and offer you new life, the life you were made to live in relationship with God. And so this leads us to ask, who is welcome at Rock Hill Community Church? Certainly, we welcome anyone to walk into these doors. We want people here to doubt, to question, to ask, to seek, to wonder. We want all to hear the good news about Jesus. But, but what defines a church? If you want to be a member of this church, what is required? That you believe the gospel of Jesus. Nothing more. Nothing less. There is no great character trait or talent or intellect or achievement or personality type or religious status or selfless charity or scholarly study or athletic ability or internet presence or career position that will earn you the title of a child of God. That comes through only one thing, faith in God. Every other religion and every secular creed says that in order for you to have value as a human being, in order for you to make something of yourself, in order for you to achieve greatness, you have to do and then do more and do more and do more, and I hope it's enough. And yet Jesus comes along and says, I've already done it for you. Just believe that I've done it for you. That's it. And you're welcome. Your past might be awe-inspiring, or it might be terribly awful. You might be the poorest beggar or the wealthiest CEO. You might be living your best life now. You might be at rock bottom. The one thing that matters is do you believe? You might be a thief on the cross, hanging for your crimes, moments from death. But if you turn your eyes and look at Jesus, trusting that he can forgive you, that he can give you eternal life, then that's enough. That's enough. So all are welcome into this church. We want you here. We want all here. What does it mean to belong to this church, for this to be your family? We are people who believe. That's the common denominator. And that is why this debate matters for us. But there's a bit of a surprise turn at the end of the story. We're going to look at the response in verse 19. So James is continuing to speak here. Therefore, my judgment or my opinion is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Wait, what? <laughs> Why are we talking about sex and blood here? That was an abrupt turn. Uh, and we've just said that the only requirement to be accepted by God is faith in Jesus. So why is James recommending that the Gentiles should do all this stuff that's required in the law of Moses? What, what is going on here? Here's what's going on. The four stipulations that are mentioned come in two pairs. So the first one is that Gentiles shouldn't. 
uh, in pagan sacrificial ceremonies, you know, like to the Greek gods or so on. Uh, two, that they shouldn't have sex that goes against God's design, uh, probably with the subtext that a lot of pagan religious rituals also involved sexual acts. So do you see how those two go together? Um, they're both about pagan religious rituals. And then finally, they shouldn't eat meat that's been strangled or bloody, which was offensive to Jews. Oh, those four commands aren't random. Uh, James got them from Leviticus 17 and 18, where Moses is laying out some rules for Gentiles living in the land. So here's what James is saying. He's saying, okay, Gentiles, you are welcome into God's people by your faith, full stop. And I recognize that you're coming from a Greek pagan background with worship rituals that you're going to have to unlearn as you begin to worship the living God. And you're doing so while you're living alongside Jews. So here are some things that you should avoid so that you're not unnecessarily offending your Jewish neighbors. In other words, James saw that churches are now going to be multi-ethnic, that they're going to be mixed with Jews and Gentiles and people from every culture and background. And while that's an amazing reality because of the grace of God, it also means now there's going to be some conflict from that, some cross-cultural tensions that we need to work out. And so we need to consider how to get along, how to respect the conscience of your neighbor, how to love one another. Altogether, the Gentiles are being called here to the heart of the law, which is to love God and love your neighbor. That's how Jesus summarized it. We'll circle back to this more in a moment, but I want us to observe one more thing. In the process of this council, no one person was deciding anything. James said, it's my judgment, it means it's, it's, it's my recommendation, it's my opinion. He's kind of putting forward, do you guys agree with this? But it wasn't about who had the better argument, or who was the more persuasive speaker, or who was the one who's making the final decision. Rather, what we see is all of these leaders trying to recognize what God was doing, and then go along with that. For uh, in all the speakers, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, James, the emphasis is not, this is what I think is best, let me get people over onto my side and we'll debate this out, but rather, what is God's will? And how can we do that? I sometimes hear the misconception when talking about the, the formation of the Bible uh, with people. So the common misconception is that the way the Bible was formed, especially the New Testament, is that there were some secret shady councils that happened where a bunch of church leaders got together and said, this book is going to be in the Bible, this book is not. Gospel of Thomas, nah. Gospel of Mark, well, Mark slipped me a 20, so sure, we'll put his gospel in, that kind of thing. Um, and then over time, that's kind of how we got this Bible. But actually, what happened throughout history is that churches were recognizing which books of the Bible God was using. So one church would talk to another church and say, hey, have you guys read that first letter of Peter? The other church would say, yeah, we read it and amazing things happened. People were saved. People believed the gospel. Marriages were repaired. Conflict was mended. Amazing things have happened because we read this letter. And they said, that happened to us too. Amazing. And then over time, as more and more churches did this, they realized which books God was using and which ones he wasn't. And that's how the formation of the canon was made. It's an interesting thing to study. In the letter of 1 Peter, church leaders are described as under-shepherds 
who work for the chief shepherd. So my boss is Kyle, but all of our bosses collectively are Jesus, the chief shepherd. It's his church. It's his kingdom. It's his mission. It's his gospel. And our role, all of our role, is to get out of the way and follow along and participate in what he is doing. So with this in mind, the Jerusalem Council writes a letter to the Antioch Gentiles. They've collectively recognized what God wants them to do, and they write the letter. We have it in full, so I'm going to read it. Verses 22 to 35 here. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it had seemed good to us, coming to one, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those uh, who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So after the council has debated what is required for salvation, after James's recommendation of about how Jews and Gentiles can practically get along, the response is nothing less than joy, unity, encouragement. Notice in verse 28, the letter says, it seemed good not only to us, but to the Holy Spirit to emphasize faith alone for salvation. Again, they're trying to recognize God's will, listen to him, and do what he wants for the church. And what about those restrictions, those four things that uh, James uh, advised from Leviticus that the Gentiles abstained from? How was that received? Well, it was not received as, what a burden, or that's legalism, but with joy. There's wisdom here that we need to follow. This is best for the church, for us to live together in peace. So amazingly, what starts off as a serious issue that had the potential to divide the church ends up with one mind, one heart, one mission, one faith in the one Savior, Jesus. Of course, the church is not always so unified. If you just glance your eyes down to the next story, we don't have time to read it. But right after this is a story about a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, serious enough that they go their separate ways. But I want to go back for a moment to those stipulations, those four things that James recommends that the Gentiles abstain from. 
in the actual letter to James in the New Testament, there is a strong emphasis that while faith alone is necessary for salvation, faith never stays alone. In Christ, God accepts us as we are, and then by the Holy Spirit, God doesn't keep us as we are, but transforms us gradually over the course of our lives. Faith leads to growing faithfulness to God. And of course, we are so imperfect. More often, we are faithless than we are faithful. But fortunately, our salvation isn't based on our works, but on the grace of God that transforms us. I sometimes hear this idea that freedom in Christ means freedom from any obligations or responsibilities. You know, why are you or God telling me that I should or shouldn't do this? That's legalism. I'm free in Christ. And yet what that worldview misunderstands is that every relationship has obligations, and that's a good thing. I am free to love my wife, Melissa, as deeply as I can, but we also made vows to each other, obligations that I've promised to keep. Those are good for our relationship. When we join a church, we have obligations given to us in the scriptures to love one another, to not judge one another, to not offend one another unnecessarily. Pastor Kyle often speaks of personal legalisms, things you restrict yourself on personally, not as a matter of sin, but something you do for your own good and for the good of others. We should know our brothers and sisters and care for their spiritual well-being, just like the Gentiles did in Antioch for their Jewish neighbors. I realize that goes against the grain of our American individualism. It's pretty countercultural to say, I'm going to give up this right because it's better for my neighbor. Or I'm going to do this thing that I wouldn't normally do, but I'm going to do it for the benefit of my neighbor. That's utterly countercultural to do or avoid certain things simply because it will be good and loving. This is Paul's extended argument, though, in Romans 14. You can read it on your own time. It, he uses the example of avoiding certain foods or avoiding drinking certain things that would be difficult for our brothers or sisters in the church to accept. So whether it's your choice of behavior, your choice of entertainment, your choice of clothing, your choice of speech, whatever else, you willingly accept restrictions on your freedoms out of mutual love. And it's not just one person doing this. If all of us are doing this, if all of us are making choices with the consideration of how can I love God and how can I love my neighbor with these choices that I'm making, what it creates is a culture of peace and compassion, a culture where we're not looking at ourselves. We're not selfishly looking for our own needs. We're looking for the needs of others. That's the picture we have of the church in the New Testament. Paul wrote this in Romans 14. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. In the end, it's not all that important. If I'm hanging out with a brother or sister in Christ and they really have a hard time with uh, me drinking alcohol, it's not against my conscience, but it would be against their conscience for me to order a beer when I'm going out to dinner with them. And so I don't because I love them. And the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking. It doesn't matter all that much. What is the kingdom of God a matter of? of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. 
So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. The last line is significant. Christians are called to be peacemakers. Whenever we see conflict, we are not called to avoid it, brush it under the rug in a very Minnesotan way. Uh, Neither are we called to inflame it and make the conflict work and rage and turn it into a mob. We are called to wisely, carefully, lovingly step into conflict and pursue peace. That's why we're reading about this church council. They didn't brush it under the rug. They didn't make it worse. They said, we need to address this as Christians, as brothers and sisters. As a family, we sometimes need to work out the dynamics that aren't working in our family. That's a good thing to do. And when we do so, we're humbly listening to God and his word and asking, what is God's will here, not mine? Some of my pastor friends from around the country, sometimes I, I, I tell them, you know, we got a member meeting coming up or that thing, and, and because of their, you know, dysfunctional church backgrounds or their experiences, they'll say things like, oh man, you got a member meeting coming up? Are you ready? Are you ready for the fight that's going to go down? Man, are, is your church going to handle it? That church split? And by the grace of God, I've been able to say, no, we don't do that here because we're Christians. We behave differently, or at least we should. What does Jesus say is going to be one of the the largest markers that we are followers of him to the world? One of the largest neon signs that says these are Jesus people? Our love for one another. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Paul goes on, and I'll close with this, in Romans 15. He says, why do we do this? Why do we do that? Why do we willingly give up our rights Why do we step into conflict rather than avoid it or make it worse? Why do we do it? Because that's what Jesus did. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And get this, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The message of Acts 15 is the welcome of God, the welcome of God for anyone and all who believe in Jesus. And then, because God so radically welcomes and serves us, we look around and we say, how can I radically welcome and serve people around me? We pursue peace, we seek to live in harmony, we worship God and glorify him rather than glorify ourselves. That is the picture of the church that we should all long for, and it's only possible through the grace of Jesus. As my pastor or as, as your pastor, uh, and, uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, as your pastor, um, my hope, my prayer for you is that you would read Acts 15 and, and be encouraged, be challenged, yes, but be encouraged that this can happen, that church splits are not inevitable, that if we're listening together to the Holy Spirit and trying to seek his will, 
that our church can remain strong, that we can strengthen other believers around us. We're not just about Rock Hill Community Church. We're about Water's Edge and Hope City and all the other churches around here that preach the gospel. They are our brothers and sisters, and we are united together on that mission. Rock Hill, I, I long for people to say two things about our church when they visit. Really, I want them to say just these two things. First, these are people who love Jesus well. They love Jesus so much. They can't stop talking about Jesus. And two, they really love each other well. Maybe you've been in churches where they had one or the other. Well, yeah, they say they love Jesus, but the way they treat each other, man. Or, yeah, sure, they're really nice and friendly and welcoming, but they hardly talk about Jesus or the gospel at all. We long to be a church that is both. We long to be a church where we are all longing and striving for peace. So I'm going to pray for the Lord's help for our church and his protection. I'm going to pray the prayer that Paul uh, prayed in Romans 15 that I just read. So let's pray. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We pray this in the merciful name of Jesus. Amen. You can stand and we're going to sing together.